to the Smart Connector podcast, which looks at the power of connection in business and life. Featuring solo episodes as well as a range of exciting interviews with entrepreneurs across multiple sectors, we offer tips and advice to build your impact, wealth and success, attract others for all the right reasons, and become a Smart Connector, the architect of your amazing business and life. I have a another wonderful guest for you tonight, Lucas Root. Welcome, Lucas. Thank you so much for having me, Jane. Yeah, so Lucas is a consultant and a thought leader based out of San Diego in the US. So it's great to have him here. And he works with strong brands and businesses with well-funded, great ideas that they're unsure of how to execute. So we're going to talk today about being a consultant, how you get to be a consultant, what kind of work consultants do and also, what it really takes to make it in this competitive but very, very exciting field. And Lucas has just launched his own podcast as well. So I just wanted to congratulate you on that, Lucas, here live and just give you an opportunity before we get into it to tell everybody what inspired you to launch your own podcast and what the podcast is all about and what's, what it's called. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. So it's called Elements of Community. I, I've spent a lot of time in my life thinking about community. I mean a lot, probably far too much. I grew up in, in northern Vermont, which is really like the backwoods. And where I grew up, everybody knew everything about everybody. I mean, really everything. So on the downside, that means that I could never do anything bad, you know, which is <laughs> maybe okay. But, but, you know, young people need to go out and get in trouble. And that's like part of what you do when you're growing up, right? And, yeah, and I, I couldn't get away with that. On the upside, it also means that any time that anything negative could have happened in my life and anyone else in the community, people in the community caught me as I was falling. They helped me to, you know, stay in a position of relative safety and security, which is amazing. It is. It's amazing. And they show up for all of your life events and, and they're there to, to celebrate you. And all of that together just is is something that I, I just, I'm not seeing a lot of in the world today. And, and it is what it is. That's fine. I'm, so I spend time thinking about it. Now I live in an apartment complex that calls itself a community. Mm -hmm. um, and I had this sort of, I like to look at different moments in my life as, as two by four moments, right? Ton of brick moments where something hits you in the head really hard and you feel it and you're like, wait, hold on. I, I've been missing this and now I see it. Oh. <laughs> and, and this, this two by four moment was just for one reason or another, I'm driving into my apartment complex and I saw the word community in the title of the apartment complex. And I said, wait a minute now, this is not a community the way I grew up in community. This, I don't, I don't actually know any of my neighbors, one of them. I know one of my neighbors and there's a thousand people or a thousand different households in this apartment complex. Mm. And I know one of those neighbors. There's nobody here to catch me when I fall. There's nobody here to support me if I mess up. There's nobody here to celebrate my wins and successes. Nobody cares that it's my birthday. Nobody comes and knocks on my door for Halloween. Mm -hmm. um, my version of a community is very different from the name on my apartment complex. Yes, which is kind of, like, a, yes, a sort of a marketing, marketing version of a, a, just a, an illusion of community. <laughs> yeah. Now, nobody ever calls their high heels running shoes. True. So why are we calling this apartment complex, which is fine. I enjoy it. I live here. I choose to continue to live here. Why are we calling it a community? Why are we calling these high heels running shoes? And it occurs to me that using, using the shoes example, nobody would ever, ever even accept, nobody would even tolerate the notion that high heels are running shoes because we know what running shoes are. And you'd look at this and say, this is just stupid. You're being... You're being stupid calling these high heels running shoes. Indeed. But maybe nobody knows what the word community means. And so that same reaction that I think should be happening is not. Yeah. Oh, that's such an interesting thought because community is used a lot as a word to make people feel good, isn't it? Because we are not bred to be 
alone. You know, we all feel safe. We're like tribal animals, aren't we? So we feel good when we feel as though we belong. We, I think we're, we're just like dogs. We're pack animals, aren't we? Mm. So I think that word community, I, I've seen community, the word community banded around in all sorts of different ways, particularly in, in a commercial context. And I'm totally with you in that, look, a real community is not about... Um, something that is just a collection of people that are geographically in the same place mm. or even maybe for the same purpose that it goes deeper than that doesn't it it is about connection and i know that's something that you care a lot about as do i i care a lot about it and so i had that you know that shoe moment that no this this these are nice high heels. I'm not saying they're not nice high heels, but they're definitely not running shoes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't call them that. Yes. So I had that moment and I said, I got to start going down the rabbit hole on what is community? Not just what does it mean to me? What do I think of when I think of the word? But what is it really? Yes. What is it? What should it mean to everybody? And how do we know that a group of people has become a community? Mm. What is it that? tells us that that group is no longer just a group, but they're now a community. Well, all I can say is that this is fascinating because I love these conversations. And yeah. so what conclusion did you come to? Well, I built a framework. And who, who knows if I'm shooting in left field here? Who knows if I have any idea what I'm talking about? But I built a framework. And the framework is this. In order for a group of people to become a community, they need to share a few common traits, what I'm calling elements. Mm -hmm. Number one, they need to have a common language. And this is far more deep than just English. This is the way that you use the language, the way that you speak to each other, your intonation, your rhythm, mm -hmm. so that when you're talking, you're not just spewing words out of your mouth, but you're actually sharing an idea and the juice of that idea, the words make it easier, not harder. Mm -hmm. So common language, they need to have a common purpose, i.e. the community together knows that they are working towards something. It's specific, it's understood, and we all agree that we are working towards that thing. Yes. We need to have a common value that we receive from being a member of the community. Now, that value could be that as a, as a group of business owners, we share business, we all make money. Or it could be as a family, we get together and we hug and feel good. Both of those things are a common value. And in both cases, we know what we're getting. Mm. We need to have a common project that we work on. Now, this is different from a purpose. A project is, is time bound, right? So there's a beginning to it and an end to it. And we show up together and we work towards the completion of that project. Now, projects could be very simple and they could be very small. A family reunion, and for my purposes, right, on the, on the family side, a family reunion is a project. We all travel, we all show up, we all eat grilled chicken together and drink some beer together. That's a project and it's a good one. Or it could be a different kind of project. We could be putting together a newsletter for the neighborhood that we live in. We could be putting together a networking event. Those are all projects and they all work, but, but we need to know that we are working together on a project. We have to have done it in the past. We have to be planning to do it again in the future. Those are, that is an element of community is this common project. And then finally, so there's five that I've identified. Finally, we need to have common heart. And this is, sort of a, a way of looking at bi-directional enrollment. Mm -hmm. So I am enrolled in the community, but I also enroll the community in me. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is just, it's just so fascinating. And as you were talking, Lucas, I was thinking about how London, for example, has changed. Because when I grew up, this was kind of pre-Brexit, which is obviously, well, not pre-Brexit, it was, it was really pre the EU, you know, mm -hmm. that everybody was, was actually under the EU rules. Anybody from Europe was allowed to come into the UK and the, all of a sudden 
London became a complete melting pot. And if you were on the tube, you'd hear 10 different languages. People would be mm -hmm. chattering away to one another because, of course, there was still a lot of tourists. And as somebody who remembers London before that time, I felt that this it was now impossible to make it feel like any kind of a community. You don't really have a global community, do you? A community, as you said, it's made up of, of common elements and common languages. And I think that we have lost, we have lost that because I can't really think of, of many communities in the UK that, that have those elements. I, I think it's rare it, and, it, and it's increasingly rare. So what can we do in order to bring that sense of community back into our businesses and our, and our lives? That's a great question. I don't know, <laughs> but I'm, I'm starting by trying to define community so that people know what it is and, and have a feel for the value that it brings. Yeah, and I think that's an important point, the value that it that it brings, because as you said, you've, you've experienced that. And of course, everybody, everybody wants opportunities these days. By moving around, we get opportunities, don't we? So you've moved from, did you say Vermont, where you grew up? Yeah, yeah so, I, I grew so up in you, northern Vermont. Yeah, so you've moved from northern Vermont, which was presumably fairly rural compared to mm -hmm. San Diego, where you are now. And... That is what a lot of ambitious people do because because they want to break free. They want to go where the opportunities are, don't they? And so they migrate. The smart people migrate to cities, don't they? And then they have to form communities of their own. And that has been a very big challenge, I think, particularly over the last couple of years. And, yeah, it's a challenge for all of us, isn't it? It is. I think that, and it's it's sort of built into Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm -hmm. but, but I think people don't take the time to think about this, that community being supported and supporting, right, in, bi-directionally, community is actually a need. It's yeah. Something that, it's something that we require. And when we don't have it, it's not like fasting. You skip a meal, you're probably going to be fine. You skip two meals, you're probably going to be fine. You skip a week of meals, most of us in, you know, most of us who are listening to a podcast probably will be fine skipping an entire week of meals. <laughs> and community hits us in a very different way. It makes us feel insecure. Mm -hmm. And we know what happens to humans who feel insecure. We feel like we are embattled. We feel like we're under attack at all times. Yeah. Because we are. We are under attack at all times. Now, that's true whether you have a community or not. But when you have a community and you're under attack, you turn to your community and you say, I'm under attack. I need support. And that's what your community will do. They will support you. Yeah. When you don't have a community, then you get reactive and you start to fight back. Yeah. And when we look around at the world today, all we see is people who are reactive. And I think that a big piece of this is because most of those people don't actually have community in their life. Yes. And I think you're so right. And I have a way of thinking about this because really the smart connector, a lot of people say to me, well, what is the smart connector? Well, Okay, it has different layers of meaning. Some people say, well, it's all about kind of bringing people together and networking. And yeah, I mean, that, that is an aspect of it. But the reason why I chose that title was because the power of connection is very meaningful to me personally. So oh, I love for me, it. Yeah, so for me, connection actually exists on three levels. First of all, it's connection to self. And that is really entering into some form of an active dialogue with ourselves so that we understand ourselves better. And I think that's kind of what everybody should be doing really on a daily basis. And then secondly, the connection to others, which is really about the ability to be seen and heard without judgment and also to see and hear others without judgment, without blame, without any agenda, but actually having that, having those conversations, those very open conversations. And then connection to many, obviously there's a commercial application in terms of, okay, how does your message cut through the noise? And I know that 
you know, how do you how do you show up to the world as your authentic self? And I know that you're very passionate about that. And you're going to talk about something that your product that you've got around that a little bit later. But also it is about, OK, you have to have those other two aspects in place. And how can you have those things? How can you show up to the world as the most authentic, empowered, excited version of yourself? when you're lonely, when you don't have anybody to be your, actually show up as your true self too. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently and it is very, very similar. It's just you're looking at it through a, one particular lens. I look at it through another, but I think we're talking about exactly the same thing. That's amazing. Yeah. It is. Elizabeth Gilbert is a, a, an amazing and prolific writer. For people who haven't read her stuff, you should look her up. She did a TED Talk. Yeah. And in her TED Talk, she talks about how inspiration, and she doesn't call it inspiration, but she talks about how inspiration hits us. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the idea that when when inspiration is coming to you, and she 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 does an amazing job with this, when it's coming to you, it's coming to you like a train that's hurtling down from from out beyond, right? Down the hills or whatever. And when it hits you, you better grab a pen and paper right then and write down exactly what that inspiration is because it will pass on. Uh-huh. And one of the things that I think about coming out of that, and, and you just mentioned this in a way in passing, and I'm, I'm sort of connecting the dots. One of the things that I think about there is that inspiration probably like a train it probably will drop off a little bit and then move on and drop off a little bit with somebody else and then move on and very much in line with this podcast inspiration leaves trails it leaves connections it leaves opportunities Mm -hmm. for a much more complete idea to be brought together by multiple people maybe people in a community yeah yeah exactly exactly because when you just have one person who is driving forward a relentless agenda of their own, I mean, look at Putin, for example. He's a prime example of that, isn't it? You know, he's got this idea. I mean, look, none of us really know what's going on behind the scenes, but certainly to me, it seems as though he's got this idea that he wants, you know, he wants Ukraine. So that's he's driving it, driving it, driving it. And what happens, as you said, with the power of community is that multiple voices get the opportunity to 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 have nuanced communication. And that's inevitably going to be stronger, isn't it? We are stronger together. We are definitely. And so those extremes that we see of those kind of crazy, wild, sort of narcissistic dictator type behaviors they can't exist really can they in strong communities yeah and you know i'm i i'm not an expert on this yet although i sus- i suppose over you know a few seasons of doing this i will be but it it seems to me like probably he got a piece of the truth mm-hmm. and he interpreted that piece of the truth and from the position in the world that he lives in he started acting on that now i mean we can look at other examples of that some that maybe didn't work out so well, like Hitler, and some examples that maybe we, you know, looking back at history, maybe we think of as great, like Mahatma Gandhi. Churchill, maybe. <laughs> Churchill, sure. Where Those are examples of somebody who got probably a piece of the truth and, and relentlessly drove forward in sort of the same way as Putin. But, yeah. But, you know, we, looking back on history, we consider that to have been a positive application of that piece of the truth that he had available to him. Well, I think I think thinking about Churchill, for example, I mean, what he definitely did is he was a unifier because because he brought basically brought the too. together. Yeah, exactly. There yeah. was a movement or cause, and he was the catalyst for that community and for people coming together. Whereas, I guess you know, looking at Putin, I mean. I feel sorry for the Russians. I feel sorry for the Russian sh- soldiers as well as as the people of Ukraine. I can't see anything positive coming out of that. So I'd love to just talk a little bit more about about you, Lucas, because 
normally we go into a bit of a bio of our guests before we actually get into it but you started talking about such interesting things that I just couldn't draw myself away and actually ask you about you but you said that you grew up in in Vermont so how did you come to do what you do today so you're a very successful consultant you do really interesting work how did that all come about and what is it that you love about about being a consultant and how do you work as a consultant as well? I, I do love being a consultant. So I, I went to college, I got a good job, just like everybody tells you, you should. And the the good job that I got was working on Wall Street. So I, I started out in the projects world and maybe that turned out to, you know, build into the career that I have now. I, I quickly worked my way up in the projects world to project management. And I, I got into the back end of mergers and acquisitions where I was the guy who would um, I was the guy who would put together, like stitch together two different companies on a merger. And it's it's amazing work. It's incredible. I was I was interfacing all the time with with people who had decades of experience and were at the top of their game in incredibly amazing people. And my job was to help figure out how two very different companies who usually have a lot of overlap were going to be able to fit together into one company where that overlap became their strength. Yes. It was awesome. I, I did that for 17 years. At, at the end of 17 years, my wife and I both agreed that I had been there, done that. I, it was time for me to move on. And so I, I launched my consulting company. In, intended to be more or less the same. Now, it's not the way that it turned out. I actually haven't worked on a single merger since leaving Wall Street, but I thought that's what I was going to be doing. Uh-huh. <laughs> Instead, the Pokemon company, which I display over my shoulder, actually here it is over my left shoulder, the Pokemon company picked me up and they said, we, we love your skills. We love your idea. We love the idea of working with you. We're going to give you a try. Okay. And they... They tested me. I, yeah, I said the same thing. Okay, let's do this. I, I like Pokemon. Let's let's see where this goes. Um, they continued to like me. And now they treat me kind of like an outsource COO. Oh, amazing. It's very cool. That That's not the title that I have. And, and probably if I were to write that down as the title, they'd call me up and say, no, we can't call you this. But that's kind of the way they treat me. They, they come yeah. to me with with really cool business ideas and they tell me how to figure, you know, how to make it work, how to execute this idea. And I think it's fantastic. I work with them. I have two other small companies now that are, you know, several million dollars in annual revenue. So way, way smaller than the Pokemon company who also are treating me in a very similar way where they have ideas. And they bring those ideas to me and say, let's figure out how to execute this together. Well, that's really, really exciting because that's a very open-ended brief, isn't it? In a way, that's the, what they're saying is, Lucas, we trust you. We want your ingenuity and your insights on this. And so that's interesting because I think a lot of consultants, they come in because they, they've got some narrow task. Mm -hmm. that they're being asked to perform mm -hmm. and I think when you get to this level of trust then it starts to open up and become a whole lot more interesting doesn't it it really does so one of the things that I discovered in the process of launching myself as a consultant and realizing that the world doesn't really need to buy from me mergers and the capacity to put together two different companies that want to come together right mm -hmm. Yeah, they're, they're buying that from Wall Street already. They don't need to buy that from me. <laughs> yeah. What I realized is that we all have a couple of things that are incredibly valuable and probably for the most part, we have no idea what they are. Mm -hmm. I didn't. We have a functional group of skills that when you stitch them together, they become sort of a packageable product that could be sold. And we think that what we're selling to our employers is this thing over here, right? You all have seen the picture of the consultant where it's it's a whole bunch of it's a, a whole bunch of pictures. This is what was described and this is what was heard and this is what des was designed and they're so different, right? You've all Definitely. seen it. Yeah. So it's it's true internally too that I started out on Wall Street and I thought that what I was selling was this product over here. 
I, I thought I was selling the capacity to stitch together two companies. And mm. I went out on the market and tried to sell that outside of Wall Street. Nobody wanted it. Um, but, but people loved the idea of working with me. They loved my experience. They loved the idea of them figuring out how to repurpose the skills that I had. Yes. You know, that is such an interesting point because I was only actually was was being interviewed myself for a podcast a couple of days ago and they were asking about my early career. And I was saying, well, you know what? I, I didn't really choose the roles that, that I was in. People chose me because they're like they saw something in me and they said, ah, oh, you know, that will be useful. She can do that. And that's what happens, isn't it? People are like, ah, oh, you know, this person. Yeah, there's something interesting about them. They can do that for us. And mm -hmm. then, as as you said, whatever agenda that you have is is goes <laughs> out the window, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that so often happens. I think the battle plan survive. The battle plan doesn't survive contact with the enemy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think the interesting thing about that as well is that's really us getting in dialogue with our market, isn't it? Yes. Because because it's not about us. It's about it, it's about what happens at the intersection of the market and us mm -hmm. which is and i remember because i used to do like life drawing classes and this is like some lesson that i always remember they like don't draw the outline of the body you know look at the spaces look at the shapes of the spaces that's what you've got to look at and oh, i always cool. remember that lesson yeah look at look at the shapes look at the spaces don't look at the outline it's a, it's a good lesson it's a good lesson that's a great lesson it is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm going to take that and run with it. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That that That's great. I, actually, I've got another lesson from my design days as well. I remember when I, one of the things that my art teacher said is she said, look, you know, if you're really stuck, you're trying to design something and you're really stuck, what's happening is you're hanging on to the thing that you should be throwing out. And that thing that you should be. Oh, Yeah. That's pretty good, isn't it? Oh yeah, that's great. <laughs> I know it's it's like the way that the these top kind of creatives think. So I always remember that, and yeah, it's so true as well. You can hang on so so tightly, and then and then it's just like when you actually let go because you realise that you're just getting stuck and you're not getting anywhere and you're in treacle, then everything opens up magically. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So as I was, and your, your point is perfect. As I was in the process of trying to sell myself as a mergers and acquisitions consultant, I realized something that there are three different things that corporations buy from consulting services companies. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that I'm actually only capable of selling one of those three things. The other two things I can't actually sell. Okay. The first thing is, and this is surprising, most people don't think about this. The first thing that a large consulting corporation sells, number one, the most valuable thing you can buy from them is transfer of risk. You're not actually buying completed work. You're not buying advisory. You're buying transfer of risk. Very interesting. And that's when, so for example, you know, the big accountancy companies like KPMG. Yeah. And they'll, they'll consult with the big banks. Now you're like, why does the big bank need to buy consulting from KPMG? Well, the reason, it, you know, big banks have plenty of accountants of their own. The reason they're buying from KPMG is so that when they mess up, because they will, and that's just the way the world works, messing up happens. I mess up, you mess up, the big banks mess up. Yeah. When they mess up and the regulators come knocking on their door, they can say, oh, okay, well, I have KPMG. And the conversation changes instantly because mm -hmm. they've purchased from KPMG a transfer of risk. Very, very interesting. Now, I can't sell that. <laughs> no. <laughs> if the big bank says, oh, well, I have Lucas Root on payroll. Let's go have this conversation with him. The regulator is going to be like, I don't know who Lucas Root is and don't care. And we're not going to talk to him. You're going to get spanked right now. And that doesn't do anything for the big banker for me. I can't sell that. <laughs> no, no. So what's that quote about nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM or something? Was it, was it something like That's that? That's right. Yeah. That's so right. Same thing, really, isn't it? That's it. Yep. Transfer of risk. Okay. Number that, and, and I can't sell it. And most small consultancy 
services companies, they can't sell that. It's not something that I can, it's not even something I want to be able to sell, but even if I wanted to, it's a long ways away. Yeah. Number two, the number two service that large consultancy companies sell, and this is a valid service. I've been on the buy side of this as well. This is an important thing is threat. Uh-huh. As a hiring manager, sometimes I need to offer both a carrot and a stick to my team, to my employees. Oh. And it's way cheaper to offer that stick to my employees by bringing in a consultancy service. Now yeah. my employees feel threatened. They feel threatened. And, and they feel a bit of fear. And that means that they're going to perform a bit better because I think they might lose their jobs. That's right. Yeah. You don't and want to be that kind of consultant, do you? I, I don't want to be. That. In fact, I, I can't offer that service. Mm. I, I just can't offer that service. That's not something that I personally can bring to the table. Yeah. When I'm working with a team, part of who I am and part of what I bring to the table is building that team up. Now, mm. I recognize the need for the stick in that equation, but that's not part of what I bring to the table. No. So I can't sell that service. Yeah. And I, again, and this is important. I'm not saying it's not needed. I'm not saying it's not valuable. I'm just saying it's not something I can bring to the table. Yeah. So it's actually only the third thing on this list of three things that consultancy services sell that I have and can sell. And that's this thing that I was talking about before, this group of skills and experience that I can put together as this packageable product. Mm. That's the third thing that I have. And it's actually only valuable if that group of skills and experience make me into a top expert. Okay, now, cool. Lucas, you're a top expert. Jane, you're a top expert. Awesome, you can sell yourself. Why is it that these big consultancy companies are able to charge $1,500 an hour. But when I went go knock on somebody's door and tell them to pay me $1,500 an hour, they don't want to. It's because when you're paying $1,500 an hour, you're usually paying for at least two of those three services. You're either paying for transfer of risk plus expertise, mm -hmm. or you're paying for the stick, the, the, the challenge, the threat to the team plus expertise. Yes. And I can't offer that second piece, right? Or which, whichever other of those two pieces somebody's buying, I can't offer it. So I'm, I don't get to knock on the door and say, pay me $1,500 an hour as much as I want to. I mean, I get to ask, but they're just going to say no. And, and then what? <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I guess it's all a trade-off, really, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, probably you have a lot more fun and do a lot more kind of interesting and creative things than those other guys that they must just go home at night and think, oh, thank God it's over. <laughs> mm -hmm. As did I when I was on Wall Street. Yes, exactly. I can imagine. Yeah. And I know a lot of people from the private equity world, and it's a very, very stressful world, isn't it? Yeah. That whole world of investment banking and private equity and, and so on. It's it's actually people, it might seem fun on, on the outside because there's lots of money flying around. So obviously, and I come from a media background where there was lots of money flying around, you know, so there was a lot of glamour. But, you know, glamour doesn't actually make up for having a horrible time and having to do horrible things and having a huge amount of pressure and stress on your shoulders. I mean, uh, it yeah. does for a little while. Yeah, a little while. Yeah, but not it's not sustainable for forever, really, is it? Yep. Not for me either. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you must have had a lot of fun being with your association with a gaming company like Pokemon. What have you actually learned from Pokemon about human nature, about, you know, from gaming and so on? Mm. I, I did have a lot of fun and I still do. I've been with them now for six and a half years and yeah. our relationship is strong and continues. I've learned a couple of really cool things. The first is I've always looked at sort of humanity in general and wondered why people are so interested in specializing. I mean, really deeply specializing to the exclusion of all else. Mm. It's something that I'm still curious about. It's something that continues to show up. And, and the 
work that I do with elements of community, but it's, it's something that I'm exploring a little bit in there as well. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. The Pokemon company has validated that approach for me in a way that was very powerful. Oh. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, look at the Pokemon company or the Apple company on the one hand, and then look at Amazon on the other hand. And what you see is two different, very powerful, very valid approaches to being a corporation. And remember that, you know, we we create the world around us to mirror ourselves. So the way corporations exist is very similar to the way we ourselves exist, right? Yes. So the Amazon company, it does everything, 100% of everything they do in-house. Everything. Everything. There's nothing they don't do in-house. Wow. It's amazing. The Apple company, same with the Pokemon company, they are 100% focused on being absolutely at the top of their game mm-hmm. within a very narrow discipline, right? Mm-hmm. Now, it's a different discipline, the Apple company and the Pokemon company, but but they have this same really super laser-like focus. Yeah. And for their purposes, anything that's not within that focus, they need somebody else to just take care of. You know what? Yeah. Somebody else manage that. Somebody else manage that. Somebody else manage that. I find that fascinating. It is fascinating. Validating. And I consider the lesson that they show us, because look at how successful, look at how powerful, look at how valuable that approach has been for both the Pokemon company and the Apple company, right? Yes. Well, absolutely, because you imagine the discipline that it takes to be an Apple, to be the biggest brand in the world, well, one of the biggest brands in the I don't know if it might be the number one brand in the world, Apple. I think it probably is, right? Some of the time they are. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, to be number one in the world. And, you know, I, I, I just, again, this is a topic that I love talking about. I love talking about getting chosen first and what it takes to get chosen first, leapfrogging your competition. Because as we all know, the top brands, the leading brands, they get most of the goodies, don't they? It's always better to be number one than the challenger brand, you know, better to be the Coke than the Pepsi. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all love the idea of the of, of the challenger brand, don't we? But But in terms of the actual rewards, it is always worth being the one that is chosen first. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So- so these, this idea of being really super hyper-focused, mm. what's really awesome about that, pardon the, pardon the language, what's really awesome about that is that it shows small companies and solopreneurs like you and I, mm-hmm. it shows us that there is actually a path forward to success without having to be a master generalist, which is what the Amazon company displays, right? Master generalism. They're amazing. They're great at it. Also, there's a path forward for me. I can be hyper-focused. I can be hyper-successful in just one thing. And that is good enough. Yeah. It's better than good enough. It's powerful. It's amazing. Yeah. I actually really, really love that because I think starting a business is, of course, very challenging all the time because Whenever you start a business, you're inevitably wearing lots of hats until you Mm. get to the point where you can put some systems in place, you can outsource certain tasks and functions that you don't like and so on. But it's never going to happen if you don't stay focused on that thing that you're talking about. And it's, look, this is actually what I do and this is what I want to do and this is the only thing I want to do and I'm just going to get this out of the way and get that out of the way until I can do this one thing. Uh, as well as possible. So I love that. I really love that. And the idea that the parallel that you've drawn between between the biggest brands and the, the most successful brands in the world, you know, like Apple, and us tiny little people that are just, you know, making our own way in the world and doing what we do and trying to be the best at that. That's really powerful. Thank you for that, Lucas. Great lesson. My pleasure. Great. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, amazing. So do you ever look back on your days in Wall Street and think, you know what, that mergers and acquisitions work, that was that was a lot of fun. That that was 
there's a lot of adrenaline that goes with that, isn't there? Having been through the whole M&A process myself, I mean, I just, you know, that yeah. that deal, that deal flow thing, you know, it's 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 exciting, isn't it? Do you it feel really as, is. Yeah. Do you feel as though your life is as exciting now as it was then? It's yes, absolutely, without question. In 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 fact, it's more exciting, but in a very different way. I'm, I'm not being driven by somebody else's agenda. Yeah. Not that that's a bad thing. I was an employee back then. I needed somebody else's agenda in order for me to be able to show up and appreciate the structure that was created for me to perform inside of. Now I have to create that structure myself. And it turns out I'm good at it, but you don't know until you try. You don't know if you're good at that until you try. You don't know if you're going to love it until you try. When you try, it is entirely possible that you're going to build your own structure and be like, mm, no, mm -mm, this is not for me. Uh, uh Get me out of this and go back to being an employee. And I've been on both sides. Yeah. And it's okay for you to say, this is great. What took me so long? And it's also okay for you to say, oh my God, this is not going to work. I have got to go back. They're both okay. Um. Yeah. So, so yeah, I look back and I say, man, that was a lot of fun and I'm glad I did it. And I also say, and, and for me, this is better and I'm glad yeah. I made the change. Yeah. And, and that again is a really, really good point. So just to thine own self be true, I think said William Shakespeare long, long time ago, and it's still as true today as it was then, right? We have to follow our own path and we're allowed to mess up and we're allowed to experiment. And and that's all good because what is life other than a whole series of, of challenges where we learn about ourselves and about the world around us, right? Yeah. Yep. That's exactly it. A whole bunch of bloody noses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we so run into a wall, we get a bloody nose, we wipe ourselves off, we <laughs> keep moving forward until we run into another wall. Yeah, that's true. So Lucas, what advice would you have for somebody who's perhaps working as a consultant, say in one of the big companies, because there's, you know, there are plenty of people at the moment who are perhaps in the situation that you were in many years ago, and they're actually thinking, should I take the plan? Should I start my own consulting business? I've got these, these skills, this wisdom and experience, and I love the idea of being my own boss. What would you say in terms of, well, how, how should they start? Mm, awesome question. So first and absolute foremost, my first year as a consultant, despite that a very powerful brand, the Pokemon company picked me up, I made $8,000 my first year. So you can succeed. I, I do quite well now. You can succeed, but make sure that you have at least two years of your bills paid before you step out on your own to figure out whether or not this is for you. Two years, not yeah. six months, two yeah. years. Because even if you decide you love it, you get out there, you're, you're building your own structure, you're finding your own customers, you're, you're pricing your own services, people are kind of saying yes, even if you decide you love it, there's a really good chance that it's going to be a while a year, a year and a half before you get to the point where the income that you can actually drive for yourself will cover your bills. Yes. Make sure you got two years of your bills covered. Number one. Great point. And it doesn't matter where that comes from. Could come from savings. It could come from your significant other's job. You know, have the conversation about how long this is going to take and make sure that you as a, as a, you know, as a partnership are, in a position to be able to afford that. It could come from a an investor. It could come from a wealthy partner who wants to see this partnership between you and them succeed. It, you know, there are lots of different ways to cover those two years of your bills, but but cover those two years of your bills. <laughs> I, I think that is absolutely fantastic advice, if if I may say so. And of course, a lot of people don't want to hear that. They'd be like, well, you know what? I don't want to earn $8,000 in my first year. I'm, I'm on, I'm on, you know, I'm on 60 or $80,000 at the moment, or even more or $100,000 or whatever. What are, you know, what do you mean? But 
the, the point is that you have to build you have to build something and building means that you do have to invest you have to invest your time you have to invest a bit of money but the rewards after you've made that investment if you keep on are going to be far in excess of what they would have been if you stayed in that job and that is it's just risk and reward isn't it yep perhaps per perhaps you'll make less but you'll be happier uh, yeah. Well, in, in which case, yeah. I mean, it's uh, the rewards, uh, as you said, they're, they're not always material, are they? You know, yep. we, we only have one life. Time is finite. So the hours that we spend in every day are precious. And life is too short for us to be spending those hours unhapp unhappily, really, aren't That's, they? I couldn't have said it better myself. Number two, prepare yourself to pivot. And that's not necessarily because what you're trying is failing, but more because what somebody else wants to buy from you might not be the thing that you think that you want to be selling. So think again, because <laughs> what they want to buy from you has merit. It has meaning. It is a data point and you need to consider it. And just like what I went through when the Pokemon company picked me up, where I thought that I was trying to sell this and what they wanted to buy from me was this. And there's only a passing resemblance between the two. <laughs> yeah. Prepare yourself to go through that process of self-discovery and say, okay, well, this is what people are buying. Maybe this is the way I need to be packaging. Yeah. And I, I love that because as the, I have these conversations with a, with a lot of people and everything that you say completely resonates because I think whenever anybody launches a new service, any kind of a new service into the market, unless obviously it's something that is very narrow and clearly defined and everybody knows what it is, you know, like you're a lawyer or something like that. But if, but if you're in a more kind of creative service-based field like consultancy or whatever, then, mm -hmm. then the market does tell you, the market does tell you and people come forward and the people that do come forward, and I've often been surprised, I thought, well, do you know what? I, I, I didn't think that I would appeal to those people, but they see something in me. And then more of those people are coming forward yeah. and then even more behind them. And it's like, okay, so yeah. <laughs> I am for them. And that's what you learn about yourself. And it is, it is fun, but you've got to have that attitude of flexibility. You can't just be that person who says, oh, no, that's not me. I am this. You have to have that kind of elasticity, don't you? Do, do you think that's, I don't know whether that's the right word, but do you think that's kind of important that you've got to be able to have that kind of push me, pull you thing going on? That's it right there. The Segway company. So yeah. everybody knows the story of the Segway company, but most people know it as a cautionary tale. And I'd like to tell it differently right now. Yeah. And Six years ago, if you were to tell the story of the Segway company, it would be a cautionary tale. Here's a group of really smart people that raised $2 billion, true, in order to build a product that nobody wanted to buy. Well, it turns out, just like what we're talking about now, it turns out that what they were building was a product that even they themselves didn't know they were ready to sell. And today, mm -hmm. the Segway company is actually the largest manufacturer of electric scooters but they don't sell under their own name those are sold under the name of the other electric scooter companies out there lime oh. bird what they were building was the capacity to be able to service a market that they didn't even know was going to exist in the future and that's very true of consultants we build a whole bunch of skills we build a whole bunch of experience we don't necessarily know how the market wants to buy Yep, because we have to find out, don't we? There's no we other way. Yeah, and we, can, we can get clues. But <laughs> yes. that's, that's all we got is clues. Yeah. But market is constantly evolving, isn't it? And and yep. there's nothing that we can do about that because change change is a constant. It's the only constant, isn't it? It really is. Be more like the Segway company, and if you can manage to raise two billion dollars, I salute you. But also. We already know that you've built the capacity to do a bunch of things and let the market help you figure out how it wants to use you. Yeah, I love that. That is such a good message. Yeah, yeah that's great. 
Well, Lucas, we've had such a fascinating conversation. I think we've had a wonderful connection and I personally can't wait to listen into your podcast. Well, thank and, you. <laughs> yeah. So there is, there is something that you run that I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about. So would you like to tell our viewers and listeners about your, your boot camp? I would love to. So okay. quarterly, a partner of mine, Mitchell Levy, who is the world leader on credibility, he also has a TED Talk. I kind of like TED Talks. I do too. So Mitchell Levy and I have partnered up to put together this ultimate credibility boot camp. And it, it, if, you, if you listen to this episode on replay, you'll actually hear, Jane, that you yourself used the exact words that we use to talk about credibility, be seen and be heard. Mm -hmm. Break through the noise. Nice, nice. That sounds absolutely amazing. And and when did you say the next one is, Lucas? Uh, give me a second. <laughs> it is June 3rd and 4th, or okay. maybe it's June 2nd and 3rd. And is that a virtual event? Um, it will be virtual. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's amazing, Lucas, and I wish you every success with that. I'm sure it's going to be brilliant. And so if people wanted to reach out to you, what's the best place to find you? How, how, can, they, how can they get in touch? I am very active on LinkedIn and Instagram. Both of them, my handle is Luke Root, L-U-C-R-O-O-T. So Instagram forward slash Luke Root, just because... Lucas Root was taken, unfortunately. So I grabbed Luke Root. And then my website, lucasroot.com. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening, Lucas. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you. And yeah, look forward to keeping in touch. Me too. Thank you very much, Jane. Okay. Thanks for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to rate and review my podcast as it will help me bring the power of connection to the world. I work one-to-one -to, -one to help entrepreneurs ignite the power of authentic connection in their businesses and lives. I also help them accelerate their results through attracting and converting more of their ideal clients. And if this is something you'd like to do too, why not head on over to www.idealclientsuccess.com slash masterclass and I'll show you how.